You're listening to the Autism Diaries podcast. Please remember that not all our guests are qualified medical professionals. For medical or specialist advice, always ask your GP or relevant support service. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Autism Diaries podcast with me, Danielle, writer of the blog The Autism Diaries. Today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Sharon Horswell, who is owner of the company Autism Hope and Future and a specialist speech therapist. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Danielle. It's lovely to see you. So, Sharon, we've, uh, we actually met probably back in 2016, I think I worked out, because I was recommended you by a couple of other speech therapists but before Mm -hmm. we get into that would you like to explain your background and career and kind of how you came to start your own company? Yes that's fine um well I worked for the NHS locally in the southwest for about 29 years so quite a long time um I started off in Plymouth as a newly qualified therapist in a community post mainly with children but but with adults as well and then um, I eventually moved to Torbay, again, worked in various settings, schools, special schools. I worked with adults. I also worked with organisations like the, the local youth offending team. And then um, through my work in a special school, um, I developed some specialist skills in autism. And I became the clinical lead for autism, for speech and language therapy for South and West Devon. I did that job um, for about 20 years. And through that, we we were a a sort of fair service for all children and young people with a diagnosis of autism. Um, We set up the Early Bird and the Early Bird Plus courses, those are National Autistic Society parent training courses, so that everybody had some training, all parents had some training. And then before I left, there was more and more a move to refuse to treat children who, who were suspected of having autism but didn't have a firm diagnosis. And I was, I felt quite strongly that a child's needs didn't change whether or not they had a diagnosis and, and a child should be treated on the basis of how they presented. And so about five years ago, I left partly in, a, in response to that, but also because speech and language therapy was, was becoming more and more thinly spread and it was becoming very much harder to really make a difference in the lives of children, young people and their families. And I, I decided, having worked in the NHS, as I say, for quite a long time, that what I really wanted to do was be able to make a, a real difference to people. And I, I recognised that that meant treating fewer people. But in my, one of the things I've done is trained as an expert witness. So I do help families through the SEND process, which has actually made a big difference to quite a lot of children in terms Absolutely. of getting the right school um, and, and the right therapy input. Um, yeah, and I'm really enjoying my work. It's great. I think it's that's an incredible journey that you've been on there and a fantastic change to have made. It sounds like I timed it quite well, to be honest, because I think we we did. We were one of your first families, I think, that you ever worked with. And yes, you were. I can remember feeling quite terrified and thinking, no one's going to want to employ me. What am I doing? <laughs> I thought you were going to say you felt quite terrified at working with me because a lot of people do. <laughs> Not at all. So. I just want to touch on that point about 
you know, people not being allowed to access therapies until they're given a diagnosis, because there's been Mm. such a change in these last few years where there is such a massive focus on diagnosis. You don't get anything Mm. before and you don't get anything after. And you are absolutely right. A child's needs don't change. And we do seem to live in a diagnosis obsessed world. Now, Mm. you know, in cases where, you know, like ADHD, you might need medication. I can understand Mm -hmm. that. But I really do feel that children aren't being considered children anymore. They're, They're being considered, you know, autistic or not autistic and then you get Mm. the helpers you know according to which label you have so it's really refreshing to hear that you know that was something that you couldn't really get on with and you want to actually help the child um, rather than explore the diagnosis yeah and I don't know if that is still the case um, in the area that I was working in Um, yes it is hopefully (laughs) okay (laughs) yes (laughs) it is (laughs) Sorry, um, yeah, as, we, okay. as we live in a similar area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so you decided to leave and yeah. to start your own company. So do you want to talk a little bit about the company you started and, and the methods that you are now working with, with families to work on speech mm. um, in autistic children? Yes. Well, as a specialist in autism, I work very differently to how you might imagine a classic speech and language therapist to work. So, for example, speech therapists are often, it's often imagined that a speech therapist would take the child away, sit in a room with them for half an hour or an hour, work on a programme and then send them back. And one thing we absolutely know is that that really doesn't work for children with autism. It might work for for typically developing children, perhaps who've got some speech problems and might need some practice during the week to develop um, their speech sounds. But when you're thinking about all that's involved and all, all that all that it means to be autistic, we know that you can't take that approach. So I've, I've done a number of things since becoming independent. One of the things I've done is train as a Hannon speech and language therapist, and I deliver their programme more than words. And it's a parent training programme for parents of a child with autism or any social communication problem. So parents don't have to wait for that diagnosis. They can access the course. Now, um, Hannon is a, a Canadian charitable organisation and their mission is to equip parents, speech and language therapists and teachers with knowledge and training to enable them to bring on and develop the best possible language, social and literacy skills in children and young people. All the programmes are really evidence-based and really based on the latest research and we know that particularly for young children the research is telling us that the best people to train and the best people to work with are the parents and to coach the parents so that they're really confident in working with their children and so that they've got tools in their toolkit to bring on the children's skills because what we know is it's not just once a week they need help it's actually throughout the week throughout all the everyday routines of life and and it's so it's training parents to actually create and provide really bespoke excellent communication environments for their children and also enjoy it and enjoy their children and have fun it's so essential that fun yeah so you know when we when we came along and spoke to you 
we'd had a lot of experiences, like you say, in different areas. You know, I had been sat in the corner of so many rooms and I had been watching people try to play with my son and, you know, even trying to like weigh him and measure him. And I was sat there thinking, mm. you don't stand a chance. And, and they didn't. So when we came to you and actually for a lot of the sessions, you didn't even need our son to be there. I was really quite surprised and you really inspired me because what I felt that you did with me and my husband is you showed us how to find a way into our son's world and nobody had ever done that before. Nobody had ever done that before. And you said, you know, actually, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're providing the right environment for them to engage with you if they want to. And what you did there was you you made me realize a principle that I, as a as a blogger and now a writer with with my book coming out next year, to really explain to parents that it is their responsibility to find their way into their children's world. And it is not the other way around. And that's where Mm. so many I find speech therapists are still stuck in that where they're like, come on, we're going to bring your child into this world. It's like, no. It needs to be the other way around. We are the adult. We are the parents. It's our responsibility to find out what's going on. And, you know, both of us are now so close to our son. I think if you saw if you saw us in a room now, Mm. you would be absolutely gobsmacked at his level of communication, his laughter, Mm. our fun. It is unbelievable. And it all started with that program you did. And it made us realize that we were the ones that needed to be doing this. Mm. And we saw you before our son was diagnosed. Um, I think he got diagnosed at, uh, during the point, but we definitely started before he was diagnosed because, like you say, we realized that regardless of whether or not he was autistic, there was a communication issue mm. there. So I think for anybody listening to this, you know, you don't need to wait. There are really positive things that you can you can do. And I'll be putting Sharon's contact details in the description of the podcast and on my blog as well. So if anybody is listening to this and they would like to talk to Sharon, there will be the details available. So and yes. one of the other great things about um, the More Than Words program is you can run it with a group of parents. So you can do the little workshop, workshop sessions in a group, which is great because the many principles that we know work with children with autism, everybody needs to learn. It's just you need to tailor them for your child's level of development. So we do work about where is your child? How do we adapt this to your child? And then as well as those workshops in a group, you then have individual sessions with the therapist where um, where, where you have that coaching. And, and we can now do it by Zoom, which is great. So people can come from all over. And the fact that the group, so, so and the fact that a lot of it is by group really keeps it very cost effective for a lot of parents as well. It means it's much more accessible. You're not spending huge, huge amounts of money to, to tap into a really effective approach. So can groups of parents contact you if they would like to do it together? Or do you yeah, suggest? Definitely. Oh, great. OK, so there we go. Yeah, so that, I do that, run a waiting list. One. I'm hoping to do a group starting in May. So, and I've got quite a few people interested. So if anybody is interested, you know, by all means, give me a ring and we'll see what Fantastic. we can do. Well, I'm going to quiz you a bit more on this podcast first. You don't get away with it that easily. (laughs) I just want to go back and touch on something you said that you used to work on the early bird program, which is a program I get I get asked an awful lot about. Mm. Um, So it's by the National Autistic Society. And I was actually offered it 
when my son was diagnosed and I declined it uh, for various reasons. And when I spoke to the, I think it was the nurses, specialist nurses, they said, no, we don't mm-hmm. think you need it. And they said, it's okay. very strange. And I said, well, actually, it's because I've been on your course. So oh, I, never, I never actually went on it. Can yeah. you explain a little bit about why you've moved away from that and towards Hannah now? Yes. There's a couple of reasons. I, I think the National Autistic Society um, Early Bird course is an excellent course. It really does give parents a good grounding in what autism is, in behaviour and also communication. But the reason I did decide to train to use the Hannon course is because the Hannon Hannon is much the more than words course is much more in depth about communication and interaction. That is its aim. And also, as as I mentioned previously, you don't have to have a diagnosis of autism for more than words. Whereas with early bird and early bird plus, the child has to be diagnosed. And what that means is parents can wait on a waiting list for two or three years for for their child to be diagnosed. And at the end of it, told, yes, your child has autism, then then maybe wait several more months, if not a year or more, to get on the National Autistic Society courses. Or if if the parents are told, no, your child doesn't have autism, then the parents are left with this huge question, well, where do I go from here? So for, for both those reasons, I decided that the Hannah More Than Words course to really um, maximise on my, my skills as a specialist speech and language therapist, only speech and language therapists can deliver it, and, and to really focus and, and on, on the child's communication and interaction skills was what I wanted to do. And it, yeah, it's working really well. It's really interesting that, you know, because you are a speech and language therapist, but I feel mm. like you are so much more. I actually felt, if I'm completely honest, when I was in those sessions with you, that we were almost having family therapy. And but I liked that because what it did was it opened my it opened my eyes to just how big a role I had in this and that it wasn't a case of just phoning up a therapist and expecting them to fix it. It was about changing my parenting style. It was about changing my thought process. And, you know, this is what I'm I'm writing about in my book is that actually we almost need to rewire our brains here. Mm. If you are brought up as neurotypical which I was and now we've realized that I'm not you do believe that parenting is done in a certain way in order to be effective but actually if you know that your child is neurodiverse that is not the case it's like learning to speak another language almost and um, one of the things I've always found in in my many years of working with with families is that parents often feel guilty um, and particularly those parents who, who have a child who may not be neurotypical can feel really guilty and partly because all the things they thought were going to work mm-hmm. just don't work with their child. And it's almost as if, you know, I've, I've said to parents many times, it, you know, children need to be born with a, with a how-to manual of how to yes. bring up this little one because um, it's just different and it's so much harder for those families who, who, you know, have those question marks, why is my child this different? And to actually skill people, give people skills. That, so they've got that, that different manual, that different t- toolkit makes all the difference. Well, it was phenomenal. When we came to see you, 
our son had just turned no he was he was two maybe just approaching three and Mm. he had barely any communication in terms of verbal communication and he was using violence a lot to Mm. communicate with us now he is in terms of asking and requesting things he's fully verbal he you know you taught us how to to read these nonverbal signals or or how to work out what his nonverbal signals were because there is only one manual on your child you mm. can't get it from anywhere else there are principles that you can follow and then you have to make sure it is relevant to your child i mean it was it was just incredible and i was as a parent really struggling at the point when we came to see you because nothing I did worked absolutely nothing you know I would say go and pick up your shoes and he just it wouldn't even look like he was listening to me and now if I say that he goes he gets his shoes he puts them on you know and it was just about me letting go of my ego letting go of thinking that I knew how to do this and learning from him and ever since we've done that our lives have just transformed and we are now such a happy family and he's such a happy little boy so I think I think people need to realize that if they can open their minds to the fact that actually they're not the authority on this their child is almost the authority on this you know it's it's really is worth it yes one of the things you just mentioned is um that he was using a lot of behavior earlier on to communicate yes um because one thing we do know is that when children don't have a sort of conventional way of communicating they'll find another way and sometimes that they do resort to behavior because they just need to express something and they haven't got the words to do it and we do know again that that the you know early intervention really does help knit some of those behaviors in the bud because obviously when your little boy was two three managing his behavior was one thing but what you don't want to get is a situation where he's 13 or 14 and still using those methods to communicate because he doesn't have another way of doing it one of the things I always do is encourage parents to stand back and really think about why is my child doing this what what messages are they trying to communicate how can we help them communicate that in in a more effective way that's less damaging for everybody absolutely we would have been in a real mess he he is an awful lot bigger <laughs> nowadays he's a very tall a very tall lad and there are still times as well and this is what parents also panic about I find there are still times where he is processing so much that he isn't able to communicate verbally and that's okay mm. and I think it's about understanding you know that when your brain is flooded with all this sensory overload actually one of the first things to go will be verbal communication so his way of communicating to us that he is in pain is to start damaging property. And okay. after a while, we realized that there was a pattern. And so we would offer him cowpol and it would stop and he would be much, much better. So actually now he will come to us. You can see him pick something up to go and throw it. And then he'll turn to me and say, cowpol. And and we're in it. He's able, okay. yeah, able to communicate that. It takes time. But I would say to people, don't panic because... You know, our brains have an awful lot to cope with when they're not wired neurotypically. And it is okay that sometimes parts of the brain just take a step back. So I could talk about my son and my family for this entire podcast, but I think my (laughs) listeners probably get enough of that off the blog. Um, And there are some other questions and points that I want to talk about because I get a lot of messages from people about these specific points. 
And I think one of one of the main things I get is my child is is two and he is severely autistic, which mm-hmm. I really struggle to deal with because I've already done a podcast on on labels and, and using labels. So I would recommend that um, people listen to that if they're interested. And actually what they're telling me is their child is nonverbal. And I feel that nonverbal and I don't like the term severe, I, I, you know, but being affected by the world around you, it doesn't work with how your brain works. That and nonverbal are two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So really, we're thinking about, you know, what is the difference between nonverbal autism and severe autism? Yeah. And um, autism, as I'm sure all your listeners know, is a continuum. And there's all sorts of variables that affect how a young person presents. And in all my years of, of working with people with autism, I, I think every child, every person, every young person, every family teaches them something different because every person presents in a different way. And um, one of those variables is some uh, quite a number of those children will have some kind of learning difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, some others are going to be very academically able. And... When, when I think of severity in terms of somebody who, who, who you might have be describing as, as having severe autism, I think it's really important to take into account the context that that person finds themselves in. So, for example, I've worked with extremely able young people, teenagers, very verbally able, very bright in mainstream schools, but really, really struggling, really quite traumatised at the social environment that they find themselves in. But on the surface, they've got lots of really good skills. And so that young person, I would say, is severely affected by their autism. Whereas you might have another young person who's maybe not verbal, maybe quite significant learning difficulties, and perhaps in a school where there's a total communication approach, everybody really understands how to communicate effectively with that young person, and they're much less affected by their autism although on the surface they might look more classic in terms of how they present so I really think you can't I think I think to describe somebody who who might be very able um and who can really have a conversation with you but but who's having quite severe social problems to describe their difficulties as less severe I think is really negating what that person is going through does that make sense Oh, yes, I'm and, totally with you on this. Yeah. And um, there's a gentleman called Tony Atwood. I don't know if anybody's read any of his materials. And he's written lots about, yes, really good, uh, lots, written lots about um, what, what used to be called Asperger's, so the more Asperger, more verbally able end of the, of the autism continuum. And he said that, that the way to make autism go away is to put a young person in a bedroom on their own where there's no social demand and they won't <laughs> yes. have any autism. So I think it's quite yeah. a complex picture, really. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. that helps. It's not it, an easy one to answer. It absolutely does. And I think what it does is it reassures parents whose children perhaps aren't talking yet that mm. this doesn't mean that they're going to have huge difficulties in other areas. What it, what it means is, is that there are some speech and communication issues there but actually, what is key here is finding the right environment for them. Yeah. And people panic. And I understand why people panic, because sadly, 
the education system and local authorities aren't quite up to speed with this yet, if I'm honest. And, you know, they can, you know, these people can, these children can be put in inappropriate environments for them. But as somebody who went through the mainstream education system and was almost exactly as you just described, on the surface, you would never have known. Inside, it was total chaos for me. So I didn't, my neurodiversity didn't impact the people around me, but it mm. impacted me massively. So mm. if, you're, if your child is nonverbal, then I would say it's about making sure they're in the right environment so that they can, they can start using their verbal skills because it doesn't mean they don't know how to. No, and also the other thing I think is really worth, really important to think about is the difference between actually having language and being communicative. And they're two different things. Yeah. So all children learn to communicate before they develop any language. So you might have a young baby who can, you know, you know they, they want something. Perhaps they might be looking at it because they really want it. They want to get at it. So they're using communication to tell you things, but they haven't yet got any language. So it's important to look at the holistic picture that a child is giving you. Is it that they're actually quite communicative? They're telling you a lot, but they haven't got words yet. And if so, is there a way that we can find to actually help them, perhaps use a visual means to communicate as a stepping stone into language? So it's important to look at the whole picture and the whole child. And the other thing I've learned over the years is to never give up hope that language is going to develop. Mm. Because I've had many children who, who've got to six or seven who've had very few words, and I've thought, hmm, I wonder if this, you, this young person is going to develop language. And it may be later, but very often they do. And being a bit slow with language development often goes to the territory when a young child has autism. They often develop language later. So I would say to parents, don't panic. There's a huge amount you can do to, to develop their communication skills, which actually will help language and help them to develop confidence communicatively, which in and of itself will help language develop. Yes. And these children just they need to feel like they are being listened to, don't they? Yes, you know, ver verbal communication is is easy for neurotypicals. But mm. like you say, we mustn't negate the other forms of communication that are happening all the time and mm. that really helped us as a family that massively helped us mm. as a family and that helped you know the verbal communication surface essentially another question that I get asked a lot is about children making noises mm -hmm. and I often say it's a form of sensory feedback but I don't Oh, I'm no expert on that. I mean, is there is there any information that you can give our listeners on children who are perhaps making some some strange sounds and, and what that might be giving them? Yes, absolutely. So sensory differences and how we perceive through our senses is part and parcel of what it is to be autism. And it can be one of the things that really affects a person, particularly when they're younger, and often children do develop skills in sort of coping with it as they get older. But what we see is that across all the senses, hearing, taste, sound, sound, children can present as either being hypersensitive, so oversensitive, 
to noise, taste or touch, or else hyposensitive, so sensory seeking. They're needing to stimulate that sense more. And quite often those children that are, that are humming a lot, screeching a lot, making those repetitive noises, are those children that are hyposensitive, so they're undersensitive when it comes to their sense of listening, their sense of sound. So they're actually stimulating that sound system, that ability to, to hear. So that can be one reason that they do it, that they make all those noises. But another reason that they sometimes make those sounds is to produce some predictability in a, into a world that's actually very confusing. Oh. So if, if there's lots of background noise going on around that they can't control, including people talking to them, um, that people might come up to them and say things and they're all of a sudden faced with this un unpredictable and uncontrollable noise, as they may perceive it. If they make sounds themselves, which they can control, might be very repetitive, might drive everybody around them crazy. But, but by producing that sound themselves, they're actually introducing some predictability into the sound environment. So that can be another reason why they might do it. And it's, I think we've certainly experienced that as a family. And mm -hmm. when our son was much younger, you know, yeah. he sat in the trolley in the supermarket and, you know, perhaps an older person comes up and tries to interact with him. And I do say, you know, perhaps don't. And he went through a phase of just shouting, Thomas, as in Thomas, the tank engine, at whoever yeah. spoke to him. Because yeah. he... And he still massively struggles um, with auditory input. It is definitely, mm. he, he definitely suffers with that. And it was his way of taking part in a conversation because he didn't want to be told off for not taking part in a conversation, mm. but about also calming him down, focusing him and making him feel safe. And actually a lot of the time, he now, in terms of rather than making those sensory sounds, which he used to do a lot, if he mm -hmm. wants to control the conversation around him, he will walk up to me and his dad, if we're having a conversation, he'll say, what you building? So I say, what you building? And he says, I'm Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And it's his way of saying, actually, if you're going to talk, I only want it to be what I can cope with. And actually, we take that as yeah. a sign that we need to take our conversation elsewhere because it's just too overwhelming for him. Mm. And he also uses that what you're building as a way to show us what he's doing he wants us to ask him okay um, that's great oh it's lovely and he gets so excited yeah. when we say what you're building and you can see he gets he gets visibly physically excited and he shows us what he's building and that's his way of engaging us in his world and when that mm. started we didn't have anything like that when we were working with you it was always us trying to engage in his world and eventually we got from those sounds that he was making to make it more predictable to words that were trying to make the conversation more predictable to sentences that were making it more predictable to actually mm. oh I can engage my mum and dad in my world now if I use mm. this Brilliant. so it yeah. was a really really lovely way to watch it develop I mean it took four or five years but you know it's <laughs> definitely definitely worth it so moving on with questions that I get frequently asked um, I cannot do a podcast on speech and language therapy without talking about applied behavior analysis or ABA. It is a very well-known therapy 
in mm -hmm. the autistic world. And it tends to be having been somebody who Googled autistic therapy when my child was 18 months old and this came up. I can tell you that it is the first, you know, it's the first thing that comes up. And when I read it, I mm. felt personally very uncomfortable about it. Mm. But a lot of people don't. So it would be great today, perhaps, if you could firstly describe what ABA therapy actually is, mm -hmm. and then why you chose Hannon as the as the therapy to practice rather than ABA, so that people can okay. see the difference. Yes, yes, certainly. Well, ABA has been around for decades um, and it has reinvented itself many times over the years, partly because the early approaches had very bad press and were felt to be unethical. Um, but many of the same underlying principles do remain, although obviously now um, therapists wouldn't get away with doing unethical practice. It was developed um, back in the 50s by um, a man called Lobas, and he treated a group of 19 young people for 40 hours a week Gosh. using ABA. And he claimed at the end of it that he cured nine of them with autism. And the basic <laughs> principle, yeah, we know that can't be done. I mean, no. you can really reduce people still, sometimes. People still believe it, but no, it can't be done. Yeah. No. no. And the basic underlying principle is that, that the therapist well, the adult chooses the behaviour to be working on from a developmental profile. And then the ch child is trained to learn that behaviour and to do that behaviour by having a reward when they do it or no reward when they don't. And the reason that ABA had bad press back in the beginning was because as well as being rewarded for doing the behaviour, the child would also be in some way punished for not doing it. Mm. And... I've, I've worked I've, with a number of people over the years who've, who've opted for ABA for their, with, for their children. And there's a few things that have really given me a question mark. And, and one of those is that for many children who've received ABA in their school during term time, very often those skills that the child has, has learnt, I've observed during the holidays, they've lost them again. So they've come back at the beginning of the term, sort of back at square one. And the, and the reason I think that's happened for some of the children I've worked or, or you know, I've observed and worked with in a different way is because when the reward's not been there for these children, they've not done the behaviour. So so they've not actually ingrained that behaviour developmentally in, no. into themselves. Now, the, the other important thing to say is that I think every single parent uses a behaviourist approach for some things. So, for example... I've brought up four children, and if one of my children went to put their fingers on the gas ring, I would probably shout no, or else yeah. maybe even tap their fingers gently, because I want it, would want to discourage my child from that dangerous situation. So, you know, we all use those behaviourist approach to some extent, but where I really feel it's not the best, you know, my view as a speech and language therapist, I can only express my own opinion, is when you're teaching social communication and interaction, because it, ha I, in my opinion, it must happen. It has to happen within a social environment. Mm. It's a social skill. The child needs to learn it and and apply it in a social environment. I also always want to empower parents and teachers living and working with these children 
so that in effect I end up making myself redundant because they know what to do. Whereas my observation of, of ABA is that the therapist does the work and the parent sits and observes. That's been my experience. It's quite a popular approach in the UK, but especially in the USA, where it's very heavily marketed, and it's and it's received you know different names over the years. There's one called the Sunrise Program. There's also behaviour, the verbal behaviour approach. Um, so there's lots of different ways. It's also I find it's very very expensive outside the reach of many families because ABA they they actually recommend 30 to 40 hours a week. Of working exhausting. directly with the child, yes, and you know, I don't. I, I, for me, thinking about children need time to play, they need downtime, and and that also for me, if I if I was a parent of an autistic child, would I I think I would feel, I'd have a question mark about it from that point of view. I mean, I think it's it's helpful for some behaviours. I'm sure that's true, but for myself, I would much rather use a research based. Um, program approach with with proven efficacy that's much more naturalistic to teach social communication and interaction i completely answer some of your questions oh it does um and you'd be very diplomatic far more than i would be um so thank you but i think that's the real the real difference that you stated there for me is when you use the word train and you know when you train a child to act a certain way and then they can have a suite, actually what we're doing is almost, I personally feel, this is my personal point of view, that we're taking away their personality and saying that they're not good enough for this world unless they behave in the way that we want them to. Mm. And I would much rather encourage a child to be who they are and that the rest of the world needs to adapt to that and, you know, Mm. and accept this. And, there are really there are some really sad stories of ABA being used to abuse children. And I, you know, I, I wondered about whether or not to put that in here, but I do just need to make parents aware that just because somebody is a qualified therapist does not mean that you can immediately trust them and that you have to build that relationship of trust and spend time with them. And that was another reason why I loved doing Hannon, because my son wasn't even in the room. So I was able to really experience it for myself and judge as a parent whether or not it was right for him. And I was also able to do it myself, which made me feel like more of a parent. And, mm. you know, and I, I know of several families that have therapists working with their children in school and out of school for huge numbers a week, huge numbers of hours a week on a reward-based system. And, you know, and that's... <laughs> That's up to them, but I personally want to bring my child's personality out. I don't want to train it to go away. And, Mm. you know, all of our children have something really valuable to give this world. And, you know, for for the sake of for them developing speech quicker, I don't want to suppress that. So that is one of the other reasons why we decided to do the Hannon programme. I'm just aware of time because I could talk for hours on this a lot of parents write to me and say what should I be doing and they say what should what can I do to encourage my child to start developing speech is there anything simple that people can do at home 
while they're waiting for therapy or they're exploring the right therapy, what would you suggest that they do with their child to help them encourage that? The first thing I would recommend that parents do is to just spend a little bit of time standing and watching your child, observing them. What is my child showing an interest in? What are they doing with that toy? And, and your, if your child does have autism, they may do different things with toys from, from how completely developing children play with them. Stand back and watch. And when you really notice what your child is interested in, instead of trying to take your child away for that and, and maybe bringing out a toy that you think is educational or good, get down on the floor and get involved in what your child is doing already and what they're already interested in. Forget all the expectations about what other people's children might be doing, what children should be doing at this age, and get down there, follow their lead, talk about what the child's doing as he does it. That way he's hearing the language as he plays. And he'll it's, it's an extremely validating way to play with children and to, to start to teach children about language because... Just the very fact that you're noticing what they're already doing, that you're involving them yourself and that you're talking about it really builds a child's self-esteem. And there's all sorts of things you can do there. You can have a similar set of toys alongside your child's toys. And as they play, perhaps building a block out of uh, a tower out of Lego, you can try and copy and build the same tower. Again, talking about it as you go. You can also perhaps intrude a little bit. If they're really resistant to you joining in, perhaps in a very fun, playful way, just join in a little bit, maybe add something to what they're doing. So I would say start exactly where your child is. You get down on the floor and have some fun joining in with what they're already doing and adding the language as you go. Do you know, I remember that advice when we very first started with you. And I can remember the first time I ever did this. And my son was off the floor playing trains. So I was very cheeky and I hid one of his trains behind a block. He was outraged, <laughs> but he recognized I was there. So then I took another train and I had my train and he had his train and I copied what he did and he loved it. And honestly, that afternoon, he played with me for 45 minutes. And I remember messaging wow. you saying, I have never, ever had that prolonged play or communication with my child in the two and a half years that he has been on this earth. So I really recommend that parents yeah. that parents do that. Take a really playful approach. So in that situation, I'd probably say, oh, the train is hiding. Maybe put it behind yeah. the block. So that, yeah, so it make it fun. Yes, we were really giggly and um, we had a really good time and he giggled as well. And it was so positive and so natural and I think it gave him confidence as well, which was lovely. Right. Yeah. Sharon, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been fabulous as always whenever I speak to you. So if anybody interested in the Hannah More Than Words programme, please do check out the description of the podcast. I will put Sharon's email address and website up there so that you can ask any questions. And also, don't forget to check out our Facebook pages and Instagram pages and also my Patreon channel. If you would like to see videos on various areas of autism and ADHD, you can visit www.patreon.com forward slash The Autism Diaries. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Music.